conversations may run dry as night passes by, but I don't mind sitting in the silence with you. Welcome to Conversations That Shape Us, the podcast series from Leadership Space. I'm Elise Cernick, Executive Director and Founder of Leadership Space. The inspiration for this podcast series is some of the fabulous conversations that I've had over the years with social purpose leaders as well as thinkers and innovators. Sometimes these have been over a coffee or a Skype, um, and other times they've been a speaker at a workshop I was running or interviewees on a client project. Um, For me, it's been those moments when time seems to stop and I've felt a wave of gratitude that I'm here and having this particular conversation right now. And it seemed almost criminal to me that this wasn't available to everyone I, I know and care about, whether they be clients or colleagues, um, all the people I haven't yet met who I know um, also to some degree are inspired by a vision of a thriving social purpose economy. And I've often wanted to then introduce these people to everybody I know Um which isn't efficient or or good for the people. Um, So my hope is that this podcast series in some small way uh, facilitates dialogue around ideas, that it facilitates and supports collaboration, that it really connects people um, to one another, even if it's only virtually, um, so that people can build on each other's thinking, feel connected to a wider community of of thinking um, and and tapped into um, something you know, broader than, than, than what they're working on and, uh, you know, because I know for a lot of my clients who are social purpose leaders, you, you, you know, you've faced down and you've focused on what's ahead of you and um, having the time to connect and have kind of these delicious, unfolding, reflective conversations you just sometimes don't get enough of um, and, and it really matters. So what I'm hoping for you as for this series and for you as a listener is that you walk away feeling connected, inspired, or maybe even just curious and, and stimulated. Um, so without further ado, thank you for joining us. I, I really do hope you enjoy today's conversation with the uh, truly wonderful Kerry Graham um, and uh, and that you come back for others. So Kerry, welcome. Thank you, Elise. It's great to be here. So um, Kerry, you were, I remember back then when I um, first met you, um, soon after we met, you became sort of one of the youngest CEOs of the Inspire Foundation and, um, and you'd had a career to date already then in the sector um, and have done a lot since. Can you tell us a little bit about what um, what brought you to that position back then to step into that your, your first CEO role in the sector? Mm, I think like many people who take on CEO roles, they're a culmination of seemingly everything that's happened before. So my, uh, my short story is I'm a lapsed lawyer. So I started out my social purpose career as a cr- criminal specialist working with children with the Aboriginal Legal Services, uh, which was an incredible experience, which I'll never, never, ever um, regret doing and, and feel grounded me in everything I did since. But what it taught me is I was trained in a technical skill, being a lawyer, being an advocate, um, and I was working in a very large system that was working with children and young people at a point in their lives where probably their legal matters were not the things that were keeping them awake at night. Um, and I was a lawyer for nine years with Aboriginal Legal Services. 
So over that time I got to see uh, sibling groups come through the court system um, and I, I felt like by the end of that that I was a once I was a competent lawyer, I became really a tour guide through the system that I could predict with really great accuracy what would happen to a young person when I first met them and when their matters concluded a few months later, which made me feel really impotent as someone who wanted, who thought being a lawyer was the way to make the most amount of difference in the life of a, of a child or a young person. And I became increasingly frustrated about how a system like a huge system, like the court system, couldn't do more. Uh, And I saw great case plans created for young people that three weeks later seemed to just disappear when the young person was back at court and where was everybody who said they'd do all these things? So I became very frustrated, left the law and retrained in social work and um, became a social worker at first working in drug and alcohol, which... um, has many antecedents in, a, in the lives of individuals and communities and, and led me to working in youth mental health, which is, of course, Inspire's mandate. And I was hugely attracted to Inspire because when they were first created as an organisation, they were completely out of the box. Um, in fact, I think they were probably considered cowboys because they were the first people to consider engaging with young people who were experiencing vulnerability and, and meeting them online um, where they were gathering in droves and that you meet young people where you're at, where they're at was such a, a founding principle of the organisation. And within 10 years they were seen as definitely national leaders if not international leaders on how to deliver online youth mental health services. So a really great example of an organisation that took innovation in adversity, you know, against the system um, into, you know, a transformed offering for young people. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember Inspire um, and it hitting my radar back then too and, yeah, resonates really strongly. So what was it like to kind of move into that CEO role? What, what now, as you look back, um, did you do well, I guess, in, in choosing that role for yourself and perhaps what was were you less aware of when, when mm. you made that move? I think it's a great question, particularly around awareness. Um, I felt that, uh, I still feel actually that Inspire is very aligned to my values and that was important. It was it was a great fit and I was able to um, bring, to bring to Inspire at that stage an organisation seven years old, um, sort of bring them willingly into their next era, which was one of more strategic positioning and focus around their unique capabilities um, and how they could scale. Uh, It's a critical turning point, isn't it? And I see a lot of organisations like that we do in our work where they've sort of um, proved the case, earned their right to exist and, and, you know, and are now moving kind of out of startup mm. mode and into more of a sort of medium-sized business. Is that... That's absolutely yeah. the point Inspire was at. And they were also um, of their own, of his own volition, I should say, moving off and away from their founder. So, mm. again, it was a real coming-of-age time and it was a privilege, incredible privilege, to be the CEO that took them through... Um, that transition and and sort of establish them strategically and position them for for the future that they're now um, completely stepping into. But what I learned in terms of awareness, self-awareness, is that Inspire's mission was to be relevant to every young person in Australia, so to reach all three million young people in Australia. 
Um, and it didn't take long for me to realise that if even if we were able to do that, and by 2012, we were reaching 1.5 million. Mm. So one in two young people. But that alone was not ever going to be enough Mm. to support young people who are experiencing mental health difficulties. And the more that we reached out across the mental health sector to try and align people behind Inspire or even behind this mission of being relevant and for young people when they need help um, was very difficult. The mental health sector, like many other sectors, highly fragmented, um, constrained by its funding arrangements, Um, no convening organisation to make all the pieces um, coordinate and fit together well. And I just saw this great um, lost opportunity for for young people at a national level. Mm. And I became increasingly increasingly less engaged with fundraising for the machine that was Inspire and they needed a CEO that really could do that. And Mm. my passion, my path started to become... How can we, what are the ways that we can bring existing resources and, and effort that, that sit in Australia that's for young people and align them to mm. create the change that young people really were asking for and need? Mm. Um, Which aligns, it takes us really beautifully into the next area I really wanted to explore with you, which is around the sector's change. So I hear in what you're saying, if I'm right, it's not about is it sort of inspire and is inspired doing the right thing so there's no critique of inspire in this it's sort of a both and you need the is that what you're talking about sort of yeah in, mm. in, in fact the men, youth mental health system i think is a, a perfect case in point inspire has a unique um uh, capability in reaching young people online that actually is relevant for every other service provider. Mm. But there was, at that stage, there was no way of creating those links or those connections that coordinated service um, unless people voluntarily opted in and there was no forum or mandate for that. Mm. So I went looking for what is what are the processes that can create um, significant large-scale social impact systems redesign um, and stumbled across... Uh, collective impact uh, just after it was published in 2011 um, and became uh, enchanted by it as a uh, this this framework this way of working that offered hope around um, a systems redesign for, for young people uh, and and what, became a student of that what a, what yeah what appealed to you so when you were enchanted by it, what really appealed to you about the model what, what was it offering that you haven't hadn't and maybe perhaps even now haven't seen since? There was a couple of things, but right from the get-go, it was this idea that there is every... Everyone, most people that I've worked with, other leaders in the sector, are purpose-driven, full of goodwill, good intention, and all of them, without fail, have been in collaborations where they've brought the best to themselves and those collaborations have failed. Um, and people, there are many reasons why they fail. And when I looked into collective impact as a framework, I could see that it addressed some of the things that um, had, co- had caused failures in the past, but also created a way for people to come together with a greater sense of discipline and strategy around collaborative action. Um, so that was the promise. And when I went to the States to go and look at collective impact in action, I then saw the impact I saw what alignment of leaders around a common agenda and that real 
moving from egocentric leadership about my organisation needs more money to scale to more ecosystem leadership, which is together we all have skills and expertise and niche that we can all be brilliant in our own area, but if we are aligned, mm-hmm. it means we are serving the population we exist to we exist to serve mm-hmm. so much better. And I saw what that type of leadership looked like and and what it delivered for populations. Mm. And and I went over curious and came back evangelistic. <laughs> it's um yeah, and as you speak, it reminds me of um, one of the models I often use with my clients, which is from the philosopher Ken Wilber and into you know, mm-hmm. integral theory and neo-integral theory. So this notion that to kind of create change we need all aspects of uh, a system humming together that you know individual self-awareness and skills as well as systems and strategies as well as culture and power all aligned um, mm. together is kind of interesting. I agree and I, I know Wilbur's work and I see um, collective impact as a framework that can bring that alignment between an individual leader and their organisation with the, the system mm. and the population they seek to serve. I see collective impact as a the most promising framework right, to create that alignment. Doing that, yeah. Um, so and it's interesting, and perhaps we'll come back to some of the questions are, are, you know that I'd love to explore around the sector. But you, that you segued into the leadership question. You know what what kind of um, stage of 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 organization what stage of an, of a leader do you you know do you kind of need to be at to sort mm. of bring be able to participate in this level of engagement what's your experience what do you need I have a working theory about the type of leadership that we need for the, for complexity which is really what you know large scale collaborations um they, they take a lot of time and intention and a lot of work. Mm. Uh, so um, they are the best response to a complex issue, but you would also only bring that level of work and, and focus and commitment of so many people to bear because the problem is complex. Mm. Um, you know, collabor- it, this type of response is only warranted in a complex situation. Mm. It's not and a one-size-fits-all solution for every problem. That's that it. And if you've, got a, yeah. if you've got a more simple problem, then you should be looking yeah. at more simple <laughs> solutions. Yeah. That's the point. If, that We are very good at a country at technical solutions. Mm. And in a way, we have um, incentivised and rewarded really good leadership for technical solutions. Mm. So what I'm seeing is that this new awareness of what complex um, adaptive problems are... And some people have a natural affinity to lead in that space, and the type of leadership need is around how to uh, is how to work well with others across diversity, across difference, mm. to be able to work with the um, constructive conflict that different springs, um, to to harness it, mm. to understand um, what it takes to align, what alignment means at a personal level and and an organisational level and a system level. Mm. Um, and to really, um, really focus on on measuring change, like data-based decision-making. So within the types of skills, I think the leaders, leaders who can really tackle complex problems, complex social problems, the type of leadership we need, it's this, it's this 
blended Blend model. technical and adaptive yeah. in that language, yeah. And it, it requires, you know, some things that we know really well, I think, from the status quo system, which is this visionary leader that, uh, that has the solution, but it also requires a great amount of humility and servant leadership to the purpose. Mm. Um, and there's, and there's that in abundance in lots of ways in the sector... What, what do you think, you know, what's the next frontier? And I guess I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about your own personal journey of kind of, you know, self-development, I guess, or self-awareness mm-hmm. and what, you know, what's in your own personal experience, how have you changed that you've become more... Mm. Well, I am... The reason I shared the fact that I'm a lapsed lawyer is I am someone, I think I'm a perfect case in point I am a person who is technically trained so in I had to unlearn that's Mm. what that's what um, Inspire taught me and then I what I went on to learn when I really focused on collaborative practice is that it is I had to learn that what what is needed in adaptive leadership Um, and I didn't have the language for that when I was in when I was learning that Um, but really what it meant is I had to be able to hold the discomfort I feel around not knowing the answers and hold that um, um, discomfort of ambiguity on behalf of others mm. and not and, and to, to, to not um, want to always jump to solutions, to learn to understand the problem we're trying to solve from multiple perspectives, create spaces for that learning and through that collective wisdom find find new solutions that have not yet been realised or brought to bear. Mm. Um, and I got some great coaching in how to, in how to do that. Um, but my coaching, my first experiences with coaching were on this, this type of point were... Uh, not your usual experiences because I had a coach who came to me and said, I'd like to help you, which was extraordinary. Um, And I had a particular fixed view on what coaching was and then what I received and what I engaged with was very different. Um, And I I sort of look back on it as coaching by stealth because at the end of each coaching call, we had a conversation about, um, have I been challenged? Has this coaching call shifted me? is it worth us meeting again? And we would sign up to the next coaching session on the basis of mm. the one we just had. Mm. Um, uh, so it was, it did, I didn't feel like I was on a program. I was on, I was being led and met in this sort of self-discovery. Mm, and I love that, you know, that um, the beginning of um, the organic, responsive, relational mm. um usefulness, utility of that dialogue. So what was really valuable for you about those dialogues? At each end of each conversation you turn around and said, more please. <laughs> yes, I I'll did. do one more. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, more please. So, look, I think what I... A couple of things that I learnt was um, I learnt to um, accept my own power in, a, in any dynamic which I don't think I had been very good at before. I learnt that um, everyone has power. Power is not a, not a dirty word. Um, and it's how you becoming aware of it and being able to apply, use and, and channel it to achieve, um, to, you know, to be in line with your purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that was that was pretty significant. Mm. The other things I learned, I think, were around understanding my role in any dynamic. That if I'm in a challenging situation or I can't create a shift that I feel needs to happen for progress, then really not just looking at it from what everyone else is doing, but how am I contributing to that, mm. which can be very confronting. Mm. Um, yes, kind of co-owned. Uh, you know, I was love again. I think I took it. It might be from. Wilbur stuff and systems theory, but that, you know, the microcosm reflects the macrocosm. Whatever mm. your experience in doing, feeling is happening kind of in the system as well. You're contributing to it and it's a mm. constant feedback mechanism. Mm. Mm. And I think these are the these are where the learnings are for, the, for um, leaders of social change at the moment because we can go to many places online conferences and learn the technical skills we need to know about theories of change and program design and how collaborative practice works technically. But we need to create and, I think, seek out places where we can learn the non-technical, how how to lead, how to work with dynamics, how to create um, environments or holding holding environments where other leaders can step in and go through their own, Mm. um, you know, alignment or their own awareness to wanting to create more collaborative impact. Mm. Um, And these things you can't learn. You can't Mm. go to a course to learn. You can only be... You can only learn them by being in them mm. and being, you know, getting up on the balcony and yeah. starting to get aware of the di- of the way you lead, the way the other others respond, what's happening in the system. Mm. And I think that the, the benefits of coaching, reflective practice, all of those things are critical in mm. these areas, um, or else we won't be able to build our adaptive leadership muscle the same way that we have spent a long time building our technical capability Mm. and we need both and our muscles are weak on the adaptive side. Yeah and you know my observation of you and one of the things that um, you know I is so valuable for me and and I see how beautifully you do it is that you know sort of finding your leadership voice and style that's completely in line with your nature and your integrity and your values you know you do exert a lot of power but it's not power over and it's not mm-hmm. it doesn't ever jar you know the experience I have of you is it doesn't ever jar mm, thanks. Um, <laughs> but you know and so that sense of kind of having become the mm-hmm. gone through the transformational journey yourself to facilitate your own journey having the experience of that being facilitated and then to be able to sort of support others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. Um, it resonates for me in my own years and years of, you know, mm. <laughs> putting myself through the opportunity to kind of, um, you know, um, have my ions rearranged yes. <laughs> and come out different. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's really powerful. I think for a lot of people that there is, and I hear my clients talk about it, you know, how do I find my power and my and also keep humble because yeah. on some level it feels like it's a disconnect or it's a they're opposing mm. and I think there there are external forces that um, incentivize us to work in ways that are about hero leadership and power over because our systems reward you know we are rewarded by having the single solution 
when we know in these complex problems there is no one solution, no one program, no one organisation, no one policy that can go it alone. Mm. And the other side, I think, is we are incentivised through our funding structures um, to go it alone. And so, Mm. you know, we have these external forces which if we are to take this step and be and step into, I think, leading truly to your purpose, then we almost have to turn away from some of the incentives Mm. in the system and consciously turn away from them and say, I'm going to work with them because that's the system we have, but I'm going to be part of changing those Mm. so that we we can get the, the, the social change we so desperately need, particularly for young people in Australia. By working in new and different, you know, new and different ways together, mm. and that sounds like your vision for what mm. the sector needs. Mm. Mm. I do. I have a. I have moved away. Um, I think somewhat unconsciously, but now consciously from the language of sector, and I, I really do see, um, the way social change happens in Australia as more of a system. And we need to rethink, we need to conceptualise that system differently because we have, um, within that system is the role of government and we have looked for a long time for government to be the drivers of solutions because they hold most of the funding that that creates solutions, yet government only have a certain number of levers they can pull um, within the system to create change. So... Similarly, non-profits who have been long seen as the delivery vehicle, they need to be repositioned. They have a a significant number of levers they can pull to create population-level change, but they can't go it alone. And we need the other parts of the system, which is business and philanthropy, community voice, lived experience, citizen leaders. Mm. Um, all All of these parts create the whole social change system or the social purpose system and we need them to to recognise each other and be more in balance with each other. Mm. And you would say that the part of the system that is weakest is is the part where we we turn to residents and people with lived experience, citizen leaders. We have lost a lot of um, strength and capacity in that part of the system. We need to focus on on rebuilding that. Mm, Absolutely. Um, and it is, it's interesting, you know, I, I like to um, try and come back to the language of a thriving social purpose economy, which is the language, mm. uh, you know, we chose to express our vision. And, but trying to hold that with sort of non-profit language and mm. sector language and how embedded that is in our vocabulary and our mindsets mm. that um, kind of even with the awareness, it's, we're kind of reinventing, inventing a new language and a new way of as well as systems. I mean, I'm very hopeful as I look at things like, you know, um, the, all the collaborative forums and peer forums and how much more engagement we're facilitating. We've got a long way to go. We do. But mm. there is such momentum now. Mm. That's, that's um, you know, that that's the thing I just find so exciting is it feels like a, a new era of mm. the way we lead and conceptualise social change and how we practise um, social change leadership is emerging. Yes, there's more and, and more lights on the hill, isn't there? there Two are. of people who are, and they want an to be connected yes. with each other. They yes. want to, they want to um, peer learn from each other, but they also want to, they want to do what they can together. That is a significant cultural shift that we're right at the beginning of, and I think in ten years' time or more, we'll look back on this time as a real time of churn and change. Mm. But out of that is emerging a, a more um, 
impactful and more sophisticated way of working together. Mm, wonderful. I think a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Carrie. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> it's always great to be in conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Um, so we will be back, um, the Leadership Space podcast. Um, so tune in again. Um, so thank you for those who tuned in and listened. We would love to hear your comments and thoughts on what you would like more of or what you enjoyed from this. And um, uh, if you want to find more information about Leadership Space, it's leadershipspace.com.au or about Collective Impact, it's Collective... Collaborationforimpact.com. It's Collaboration our new Impact.com. Change the URL. Um, and you can also look up Kerry uh, Graham and... Um, uh, for more information on her. So thank you very much and we'll see you again next time. Our conversations may run dry as night passes by But I don't mind sitting in the silence with you In your face I read between the lines Whatever comes first to mind But I don't